Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Welcome everybody to this episode of EDGE. It's my great pleasure this morning to introduce and to have a conversation with somebody who has got an extensive um, record in social justice in terms of reform, social policy, contribution to the non-profit area and significant contributor to reform uh, around many significant issues across our country. Somebody who holds uh, a number of degrees in uh, particularly in commerce and law, is an adjunct professor at the University of Western Australia and is on numerous boards. He was recognised in 1994 as a member of the Order of Australia um, he's a commissioner on the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. He is currently the New South Wales Ageing and Disability Commissioner and a former commissioner with the Productivity Commission. Uh, in terms of NGO work, uh, President of the Australian Council of Social Service and the New South Wales State uh, President of the St Vincent de Paul Society and is currently a member of the Board of Social Benches Australia and the Chair of Caritas Australia. So it's my uh, tremendous pleasure to introduce uh, a friend and uh, a fine Australian, Robert Fitzgerald AM. Thanks, Stephen. Robert, take us back on part of your journey, uh, not nostalgia, but um, part of your formation. You find yourself thematically in this uh, reform and social policy area. So has that always been from your earliest years, your childhood? Uh... I think, Stephen, childhood makes a uh, huge impression on who you are and, uh, and frankly, where you're going. And my childhood was uh, unremarkable in many senses, but it was a childhood that was uh, dominated, I think, by um, a, a couple of themes that really came through. And one was the notion of service, that somehow or another, no matter who you are and what you are, you're around here to, to serve others. And my father was heavily involved in charities, including many St. Vincent de Paul Society, and that seemed to be a dominant theme that was around. The second one was church and faith. That You know, we were a very traditional Catholic family, not conservative, but certainly traditional. And I was around during the period of pre-the Vatican uh, too, and post it, and that had a huge influence on me, but also the social teachings. And then, of course, the, the school environments that, uh, that I attended. So I think those sorts of formative facets of childhood stayed with me. But when I was thinking about what I wanted to do in year 10, I wanted to be a vet. And I was quite determined I was going to be a vet. And I have no right. idea what happened. But by the time I got to 11, year 11 and 12, I decided I'd become a lawyer. So the lawyering came a bit late. But the social justice side, I think, was implanted in my childhood. It was extenuated by some very early work uh, that I was doing um, uh, within the church. But then uh, the really... Um, thing that uh, I suppose cultivated um, 
my my desire was I, I got involved in St. Vincent de Paul Society whilst I was at university. And that really started the path towards a very strong commitment to, to again, the sort of notions that I've talked about, service, uh, social justice, uh, whilst at the same time pursuing, you know, a, a, a commercial legal um, career. So balancing those somewhat... Um merging but somewhat presenting one could say the commercial side and the social justice particularly being a lawyer how do you uh, navigate that or or should you navigate it the, the reality is um i think you should and i did and i had to what what took place was quite remarkable I became involved in Vinnie's in, uh, whilst I was at university and I was visiting a very uh, disadvantaged families in the inner city of Sydney, um, all the places that people would know, Kings Cross, Darlinghurst, Erskineville. And it was a new group that was established and I became its president within seconds because it was new. And it was dealing with the most impoverished people in the community. I mean, literally uh, not having food on the table, not having gasoline thing, you know, being evicted and those things. And it was a relatively young group, but it was a mixed um, age group and mixed sex group. But the first law job I had, which wasn't planned, uh, was with a, a boutique law practice in uh, Sydney, overlooking the uh, circular key in the Sydney Harbour. And it only acted for very high wealth individuals, clients that would earn more than a million dollars a year. This is 30 years ago. And so by day, I was dealing with Australia's wealthiest people, and they certainly were, a, a group that I had never, ever, ever in my life experienced. I'm certainly not of that background. Um, my parents came from very humble backgrounds um, in the inner city of Sydney. But by night, I was doing this uh, voluntary work with Vinnie's. And I really, it was a, one of the most formative uh, stages in my life of how do I actually balance this? And for me, it wasn't uh, an easy choice. So I, I, I did that for two years. Um, and there were a couple of incidents that really hit home. Uh, there was a client that we had that had a large number of boarding houses and aged care. And uh, they asked me one night, would I go and evict all of these people from this particular boarding house? And the challenge for me was, do I say, no, I'm not doing that? Or do I work around it? And what I did is I contacted people within Vinnie's and others, and we found accommodation for all of them. Now, the client never knew that. In fact, nobody knew that for years and years and years. As it transpired, it was all delayed. But it really set up the notion of, of how do you balance this in life? And so my life was, for 20 years, um, a commercial and corporate lawyer by day, and I continue to be heavily involved in community services and social justice actions uh, through my life. And then later, about 20 years after I'd uh, been admitted, I came to a view, I was in Israel at the time, attending an international social welfare conference. And I came to the view that the world didn't need more corporate lawyers. And I frankly didn't need to be one or want to be one. And then I became more heavily involved in public policy and government, but always involved in the community services area. But it did teach me that you do have to make choices. Now, those choices are not always you do A or B. Sometimes you do A and B. And what was really interesting, Stephen, was by being a commercial lawyer, it gave me a great entree and influence because people weren't expecting it. So you'd go and see a minister, a prime minister, or whatever you might be dealing with, particularly when I was president of the Australian Council of Social Service. And what everybody does is they box you. Oh, you're from welfare, therefore you must think like this. Or you're a consultant, you must be like this. Or you're a lawyer. But I'd prance in and I would deliberately uh, talk about something that was very commercial. And it would throw them back. But it also meant that they then had a conversation with you in a very different way. So... It was conflictual. It's a not an easy road to balance. I don't know if I got it right, but I do know for me, 
it worked well enough to be able to influence and to be actively involved. But there is a point at then when you have to say, well, do I really want to keep doing that? And my choice was then to get heavily involved in public policy and public service, as well as remaining in the community services area. Um, and that's persisted through to this day. So um, public policy and reform, I mean, let's take those pieces. I mean, you've had some quite um, high profile and quite significant and the Productivity Commission by nature has uh, really targeted areas of Australian um, economy and uh, society. So what were some of those uh, big policy pieces and what what uh, to do? Well, what preceded that was... Um I not only been doing commercial law, but I'd become involved and I became president of the Australian Council of Social Service, Australia's peak body for protecting and promoting the rights of uh, low income and disadvantaged people. And it's a very big canvas on which you play, you know, all sorts of issues, tax policy, housing policy, welfare policy, human rights and so on. And I became very familiar with a very big range of policy areas. The government uh, under Peter Costello as treasurer and John Howard as Prime Minister decided to have an inquiry into gambling. And to be totally honest, they needed somebody that had a community service uh, view, not just an economics view. And I was asked to be an associate commissioner on the, the very first inquiry of its type, and that was in 1999. And I subsequently did another gambling inquiry in 2010, and that was seminal. And it was seminal for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was seminal for the way in which public policy in this space was perceived. Up until then, the line was always run that it had great economic benefits, which you could quantify, but the social costs, well, they, you know, people talk about them, we're really not sure what they are. So the Productivity Commission's inquiry with myself and the chair, um, Gary Banks, was able to articulate not only the economic and social benefits, but also the economic and social costs. And the industry was shocked, truly shocked. And so too was government, because all the traditional way in which they dismiss you know, uh, the social policy concerns couldn't be dismissed. And it was a great lesson to me how the strengths of economic policy and theory, um, good public policy and theory, legal background and community service knowledge can come together and shape good quality policy. I'd like to say it was a universal success and the government did everything we said because that didn't happen. And the gambling yeah. industry remains one of the most insidious and socially destructive groups that we have in Australian society today, despite the pleasure it gives many people. But that set it up. The second thing which was really interesting, um, Stephen, was that it created within the Productivity Commission for the very first time a different way of dealing with social policy issues. And from that inquiry, the, the Productivity Commission not only did industry policy and pure economic policy, but it was involved in areas such as uh, the care of older Australians. It was involved in environmental issues, paid parental leave, uh, the issue about early childhood development. And so it opened up a, a, a new really uh, area of work but the thing that was most critical in all the inquiries I've done is that you have to use these multiple disciplines to bring both evidence and thoughtfulness and knowledge and, frankly, influence to bear. And I think that's the great thing. So I've done 17 national inquiries, many of them with the Productivity Commission, some of them outside. And I think that's the greatest skill that I can bring. I'm able to use the knowledge and, and the skills of others to a problem and then put it together in a package that I think is reasonably acceptable to governments, 
sometimes very successfully so, sometimes um, you have no, no positive response at all. But the process is actually just as important as the outcome because it's the engagement with so many people. And the Productivity Commission is without doubt the most outstanding organisation in Australia in terms of being able to take an issue, consult widely, bring to the table expert knowledge, and then to reshape it in a way that has a reasonable chance of being accepted. Um, and I learned hugely from those experiences. Uh, but I also learned uh, a lot of skills which I've taken into other roles and other realms um, of my life. I'd certainly uh, have great confidence with the Productivity Commission. I have a degree of anxiety, and perhaps you can comment on this, about it almost seems a wedge or polarity around the complexity of many of our wicked social problems or presenting social realities and this uh, lack of the common good is um, coming together what's right on behalf of many rather than just polarising and bunkering down into this is my view and whether it's constructed as left or right or woke or whatever. How do you see the, the discourse around social policy or public policy at the moment? Historically, social policy in Australia takes a long time. Advocates that are out there chipping away at issues see very little result for a very long period of time. But remarkably, Australia is very good at developing social policy over time. And we are capable of enormous change over time. One of the things that groups like the Productivity Commission and other inquiries do is they, they bring all of that together in a very tight fashion. But the danger, and this was the danger in the Industry Commission, which preceded the Productivity Commission, and can happen in independent inquiries, is you get an ideology that dominates. And so the ideology of the free market, of, the, of competition, is all important. If that becomes persuasive and frankly, exclusive of any other consideration, you'll get very misshaped policy. And we were. We were starting to get policy that really was not balanced with the impacts it has on community. And frankly, the notion of the community good was replaced by another notion, you know, which is acting in the public interest. But often that wasn't a nuanced understanding. It was really about whether it would increase GDP. It was about increasing growth. Well, that's true. But the quality of life is not just about those issues. What I tried to do and others I think have done in the PC and others was to totally say, but actually there are different ways of seeing the same issue and that you do have to have a much broader understanding of how it impacts on community more widely. And the notion that common good, not a term you often see in government documents, is actually at the heart of good policy. Now, that's contestable. Some people really believe that if you drive, you know, the most creative, the most innovative and reward them, everything else will flow. Um, that's not true, but it's, but, but it's not immaterial either. So I think the challenge is to take a, an appropriate view of, of public interest, which I think incorporates the notion of common good, certainly incorporates the notion of sustainable development. I think they're all appropriate. And then you use things like market forces, competition policy, all other sorts of instruments to achieve that. What happened in Australia was, in fact, it wasn't that way around, it was the reverse. It was the market is good, competition is good, and everything else serves those. Now, good news is most of the inquiries I've been involved in with commissioners that have entirely different backgrounds to me, I think came to a very good accommodation. Not always, not perfectly. And would I do things differently sometimes? Absolutely. But it certainly, I think, is, was a lot better than perhaps what we saw in the earlier iterations of those reports. 
The danger in Australia is we get inquiries where political appointees are made, people with vested interests are appointed. You end up with these uh, very uh, prejudicial and, frankly, ill-informed uh, recommendations. And um, I think they, they're a mile away from what we've seen in some of the, the bodies like the PC Productivity Commission and other um, outstanding institutions. Take us uh, on the journey, the further step on the journey, your appointment to uh, the Commission. Catholic Church is part of you, uh, your formation, and we've had a number of conversations about uh, uh, Catholicity, Catholic identity. Uh, so you're appointed a commissioner on the Royal Commission Institutional Response to Child Sexual Abuse. My reckon, uh, recall is that you conducted or involved in over 1,500 interviews. How did you feel about that? I've got no conception about how I'd feel. Right. In many senses, I had a bit of a history in this space. I, The early work that I was doing with Vinnie's and uh, one of the parts of that was uh, a youth support group, which worked with children and young people that are at risk of going into care. And my wife was involved in that and other people uh, similarly, and I was in my 20s. And I became utterly convinced that we needed to protect children, but in a way that wasn't simply about removing them from home and treating them um, as, uh, you know, uh, chattels really being moved from place to place to place to place. And throughout my career, I've been involved in groups like Benevolent Society, which had a very big involvement with children and family services and, and other um, experiences that I had, including with ACOS and others. So when I came to the Royal Commission, I wasn't uh, completely new to the area. But nothing prepared me, nor the other five commissioners, there were six in total, for what we were about to encounter. I don't think any of us understood the extent of the issues. We certainly didn't understand the extent of the number of institutions in which sexual abuse had occurred. I didn't really appreciate the extent to which uh, there was a concentration within faith-based organisations. So when we look at it, of the 8,000 people that came forward for private sessions... In addition to the, you know, the 15 or 100 we had written submissions and, and then another 1,200 witnesses, those 8,000, uh, 70% of those were in relation to non-government agencies. And the biggest percentage, 60%, were faith-based organisations. Uh, I hadn't understood that. I just hadn't understood it. And of that 60%, the biggest group, of course, was Catholic. And uh, it isn't true that the commission was biased in the way it dealt with matters. The numbers fell where the numbers fell. And of the 8,000 people, you know, nearly 40% of those had um, been abused within Catholic institutions. So your point was, it, this, this, the stories of abuse that we heard, and as commissioners, I heard about 1,500, 1,600 stories face-to-face -face across the table in venues around Australia. The other commissioners, similarly so together with the 50 public hearings that we did, those stories never got any better. They were tough, and they were tough going all the time. Um, but the good thing about it was that we had to make sure that the people that were participating and the community at large could see progress. So one of the really important elements in the commission, we designed it so that you'd actually see change during the life of the commission. And you did. We, we actually had the report on redress and civil litigation reform early. We put out uh, nearly, a, nearly 100 research papers. We were working with governments and others as they were changing the laws during the life of the Royal Commission. So the first point I'd make is that the reason I think people were so supportive of the work of the Commission 
is not only that it was a truth-telling exercise, and it was, but it was also having an impact and people could see change. Personally, that was critically important. Five years of listening to these stories, one thing we were not going to do is wait until five years, put out a big report, and then wait another five years for anybody to do anything. Had we done that, I wouldn't have survived. The survivors wouldn't have supported us, and frankly, the community would have felt betrayed. So I think making sure we did it. But the real crunch for me personally is sure. I sat there in public. I, I didn't, I absented myself from public hearings dealing with the Catholic Church, except in relation to disability and then the final uh, reviews. And that was to avoid any potential for conflicts of interest. But in the private sessions, I used to sit there and the school that I went to um, as a child was named, the school my children went to was named, the parish that I was in, you know, was named. These were very personal. Now, I had never experienced abuse, um, and I didn't know anyone who had when I was going through it. But these are the institutions that I lived my life in. At that very personal level, it's very challenging. The second thing is the church, uh, you know, systemically had failed very badly. And yet we had people in the church who were in denial, attacking victims, you know, claiming the press was against them, even saying the Royal Commission, you know, was, was doing this and doing that. And some of our senior leaders were, were out there doing that. And I have to say that was very dispiriting because none of that was true. What was true, what was true is the church had failed in the protection of children in many institutions over a long period of time. And in fact, we were all complicit bishops, clergy, lay people, and that rang hard. And the very last point was this. Anyone who believes in faith, in religion, uh, believes in a whole lot of stuff that's very hard to justify to the outside world. That's why it's called faith. You know, nobody else understands it. And people would say to me daily, why are you still with this mob? You know, why are you still with the Catholics? Why do the Catholics believe this? How can you do this? You know, do you think they're really going to do anything about it? And so for me, it was a personal challenge. Um, People confronted me, but also just internally. And um, today, I continue to be actively involved in the church. I continue to give talks about it. I continue to challenge people about it. And I continue to get the same responses. So for me, it's not a complete piece of work uh, just yet. Two things there. I think we've had the conversation about, and you, you've done merit, as you've said, uh, other media and other mediums around why you continue like me and many others to be run on or Catholic and the sense of reform. And I think one of, to paraphrase you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's best to be inside and uh, work the conversation inside the church than, you know, trying to reform something you're complaining about from the outside. Is that a fair sense of what you're doing? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I learned. I learned in my 20s that, and, and this was reinforced later when I took on different roles, including as state president of Vinnie's, but also as president of ACOS, um, was that you need people both inside and outside. You absolutely need people that are standing on the outside throwing bricks. You know, uh, that's actually true. Social policy in Australia, social justice in Australia, church reform needs people that are on the outside putting pressure on um, and all courage to them. But you absolutely need people inside as well, people that can, in fact, work with um, uh, the, the powers that might be, talk the language, nuance the arguments um, and persist. 
And what I came to understand is it's this combination of effort that actually matters. Now, whether we're talking about tax reform or reform of uh, income support or whether we're talking about, um, you know, major economic reforms, it's the same. Um, so I came to a view that I was best skilled from working with inside. Now, I'm very happy to be a public advocate when it's required, and I've been that, and I will be that. And I'm no shrinking violet when it comes to that. But I am determined to use my skills and my presence to influence where I can. And that's not very often, and often that's very little. It's like nothing. You know, you, could, you think you're having no effect at all. The other thing that I learned was, is the gift of empowering others to do it. I've given lots of talks and lots of speeches um, over my life in various different forums. And there's a strange phenomenon. Is it's not so much what I say, but it's the, it's, it's the empowering of the people in the audience. For reasons which I don't completely understand, every time you talk or speak to somebody, somebody will come up to you and say, I think exactly the same thing, but I wasn't sure I could do this. Or they'll say, I've been doing this and I'm so pleased that you've said that that's okay or, you know, given that permission. Or frankly, they've sparked a, a way of thinking um, and they're free to think like that. And I'm sure most people that give speeches uh, uh, do that. And so in a sense, I think by being in the tent a bit um, works. But the truth of the matter is, Stephen, if I, all that's true, but the truth is I think I am just Catholic. I mean, I think uh, to the core, it is who I am. Um, Yes, there could be reasons why I would walk away from it. And there are certainly things and aspects of the church that I will not and uh, uh, endorse and hope that they will change. But at the end of the day, I think the truth is I'm born Catholic. And uh, unless things are dramatically changed, that's probably how I'll end my days. And I'm happy with that. Um, it's part of me. It's who I am. But I must say that there is a condition to that. And uh, part of the condition is the way in which the church in the next few years responds to the issues that it confronts. And if it retreats to the past, if it retreats to a church of denial, uh, where only the elite are allowed to lead um, and the rest are meant to just follow, um, I'm not sure that's a church that uh, any of us could really uh, follow into the future. Um, and certainly it's not a church that will attract one single new adherent. And that's not a church I want to be part of. So I think for all of us, uh, you know, it's, it's a testing time ahead. Lord, hear us. So, um, part of the next piece I wanted to ask you, I think, um, I think in terms of this broad canvas of social policy, your current role is around <laughs> ageing and disability. Uh, there weren't two of the big policy areas. I mean, I don't know what they are, but... Uh, what, what sort of uh, are you working on at the moment? What do you see looking into? Well, it's a bit strange, Stephen. I think by the time I finish uh, my life, I will have dealt with all forms of abuse. I, uh, there's not much. I, I think I'm the commissioner of a hatching, matching, dispatching. I, I've dealt with, uh, uh, even when I was at Biddy's, we used to run the Catholic Adoption Agency. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, one of the organisations I was dealing with by that own you know, funeral services, and and, uh, and in the middle, it's abuse. So look, this role's um, a unique role in Australia, but it will be replicated over time, which is looking at how do we prevent and respond to the abuse, neglect, and exploitation of two very vulnerable cohorts, that's people with disabilities and uh, older Australians. And like all abuse, Australians have a really interesting pattern it's firstly denial. We don't want to believe that this sort of abuse happens. We didn't want to believe that parents would abuse sexually and otherwise their children. And of course they do. 
We didn't want to believe that people in trusted positions in institutions would sexually abuse the children in their care, and we know they do. We didn't really want to believe, but I think we always knew that partners who enter into these loving relationships, you know, would beat the crap out of each other, to use an expression. In elder abuse, we're coming to the same realisation. We don't want to really believe that adult children will significantly abuse and neglect and exploit their, their ageing parents, and they do. And equally, we don't want to believe that parents will abuse their adult children with disabilities, and they do. And so we're at the stage of trying to understand what's happening, to expose that to the community, to raise awareness so that not only the community becomes aware of the issues, but also we can actually prevent it happening. But then my commission is also about responding. So we're able to take um, reports. We're able to provide community support to those families to change those the relationships that exist within the, the environment. And we're able to investigate, and I have very substantive powers in terms of search warrants, subpoenas, and I can actually run public inquiries with the powers of the Royal Commission, uh, not something I wish to do. And so our role is really about trying to see that this emerging area of abuse, or at least the reporting of it, is done in an appropriate way. Now, we don't have a practice framework yet. We're not quite sure what the right way to achieve these objectives are. But that's the exciting part of what I do. It's we're at the beginning of this process. And so um, we're just starting to see the trends, the demands and so on. And I'll give you an example of that. In the first, the year before we started, which was only 2019, the Catholic Healthcare ran on behalf of the New South Wales government, the Elder Abuse Helpline. They took about 6,500 calls. That came into our organisation. First year we've operated 10,000 calls. This year, second year of operation, we're tracking to 16,000 calls. So is that an increase in elder abuse? No, but it is an increase of awareness, people asking questions. Um, and equally, the number of matters that we um, deal with in, in a very detailed way are increasing as well. But from our point of view, it's also about trying to influence systemic and um, policy level issues. So I'm in a very privileged position where we're actually working with and dealing with in a very intimate way, people that are very vulnerable, and their families, because nearly all of this is about abuse within the home and the, and the community. But we're also able to influence policy about how do we keep people safe, particularly older people with disabilities. And what do we need to do with the service system and the structures? Because without a very robust service system, um, we will leave them worse off. And my commitment is that we leave people in a safer environment than when before the call came to us. And that's the challenge I have. Um, and it stems from a rights-based approach but I won't go into that other than to say the right is a very simple one. Everyone has the right to live without abuse. And that includes older people and includes people with disability. And I don't think there's anyone in Australia that doesn't believe that. So if that's true, if we actually believe, no matter how you express the right, that everyone has a right to live without abuse, then the work we do is critically important in ensuring that. But the truth is, it's actually a community-wide response. How do we change our approach to these issues. And that's the same issue we've had with domestic violence, child protection, child sexual abuse in institutions, and now in these particular areas. And there's a real pattern there. Abuse is very similar um, and to, in, in some, some aspects. And then there are very big differences. Um, and we're at, I think we're at a very early stage of dealing with that. And Australians will be shocked by the level of abuse in the home um, against um, older people and people with disabilities. So I think that story is 
just emerging. And let's hope it's not as bad as child protection, but it's it's not uh, by any means a small issue in our community. Sometimes uh, showing the ugliest side through stories and narratives is a way that potentially uh, we can move through and hopefully be a better society, a more mature society. So uh, one of the things that really concerns so many of us is this whole question of domestic violence and uh, when we see some horrendous, um, just really challenging things, um, a wonderful family in Brisbane, the Clark family and uh, all of that. So domestic violence is at the heart of many of the other abuses, but um, we know that domestic violence is absolutely the heart of a lot of child protection issues. Um, But in the Royal Commission, it is true that any child could be subject to abuse in any circumstances, and they were. And many children from many different socioeconomic circumstances were abused, boys and girls. But there is a preponderance of risk factors that exist for people And one of the key risk factors is whether or not the child was subject to or observed domestic violence when they were a young child. And many were. Many, many were. And so before the perpetrators within the institutions got hold of these kids, there was already a vulnerability. Now, the one thing about perpetrators, and there are many different types of perpetrators, is they can pick vulnerability whatever their position is. And we found many of these kids were easily targeted because of the vulnerabilities. Now, others had other vulnerabilities. A lot of them had learning difficulties. They had social behavioural problems. Uh, you know, they, were, uh, they, they, they didn't have uh, functional families. But the one indicator that above all was whether or not in that family there had been domestic violence done to the child and or and mostly to the spouse. And it is a very big risk factor. The tragedy is... We have not made an impact on domestic violence yet to the extent that we need to. And when we do, it will have huge ramifications. It will significantly reduce what we have to deal with in the child protection area. It will significantly reduce some of the sexual abuse that children face. Um, But it will also have impacts even in our own area. Um, because abuse sort of gets grounded into the, uh, you know, the fabric of some people and fabric of a family um, if they've been subject to sustained domestic violence uh, abuse. The great news is, but the really good news is for the very first time in all of my adult life, I think we're going to make a difference. I really think we're starting to address the issues of domestic violence, family violence in a way that will see outcomes. Now, I'm a, I've always been accused of having rose-coloured glasses about everything. I'm the eternal optimist in the, in the most darkest moment. But, you know, I think this time we are going to start to see it. And it's because the community, the politicians, and hopefully the resources are starting to flow. If we don't do it, most of the wicked problems we deal with will remain. And that translates into behaviours of kids in school, the increasing levels of suspension and expulsions, um, dysfunctionality of young people entering adulthood. Singular biggest factor, sometimes it's poverty, that's a big factor, but most often it's around um, family and domestic violence. So I hope and will work to and with organisations to achieve um, some real improvements in that space because it just matters so much, just so much. So, Robert, um, knowing you and your uh, capacity for making a difference, I mean, this might be trivial, but uh, what do you want to achieve next? 
Well, in, a, in the sort of the immediate term, it's really to try to make sure that these key issues that we're dealing with of abuse of older people and people with disabilities, I'd like to think that in two or three years when I cease to be commissioner, I've left a not only an organisation that is functioning well and meeting the needs of older people and people with disabilities, but also I want to make sure we've left a framework. That's a, a public policy framework that guides us going forward and a practice framework for actually dealing with it. So in a really... So in a really immediate, if I can make that difference, and that can be used across Australia, um, and there's many other people doing great work and great thinkers, uh, that will be terrific. Um, the second thing is I am utterly determined that we make sure that the issue of the common good um, remains prominent in public policy. I just think it matters so much. And if I get a, an ability to influence social policy uh, into the future, and I hope that happens, uh, I want that. And the third is um, I'm not going to give up on the church's capacity and need to reform. Um, I have no idea whether the plenary council that's coming up will be a success or otherwise. I applaud those that have put it on. I applaud Archbishop Coleridge and others for having the courage against conservative forces against it to do it. But I know that the, the a new discourse has happened in these churches, including the Catholic Church, and the churches need to respond to um, a new way of doing business going forward. And that includes the Catholic Church, but it also includes many others. And if I can play some sort of part in that, either as a uh, uh, a stirrer or an enabler or whatever it might be, I'll do that. Uh, and if I don't, well, we'll just keep trying until we, we're not able to do it any longer. There was, a, there was a, I was uh, curious so when, you, when in preparing for this sort of uh, discussion, uh, the Australian Finian Review, when I was president of ACOS, uh, when I was finishing up, and I, I was there when Keating was president, prime minister and then John Howard was prime minister in his early part of his term, and they did a sketch, um, a caricature of me, as they used to do in those days, and it was, it was of this overweight cherub with this big smile and little wings, and I am overweight and I do have a smile and I don't have wings, and an axe in his hands. And under, the, uh, under this uh, cherub, it was the title, The Angry Angel. And I don't, um, I'm not sure that I was ever all that angry, but I'm very determined and very persistent. So I'm still overweight and I'm still a cherub in that sense. Um, and I'm still as determined uh, to achieve whatever we can. And uh, if I'm not the angry angel, maybe I'm just uh, the, the, the doggedly persistent angel. Uh, and I think that's what many of us are, you know, with good intent, um, a bit of uh, power and perseverance and a huge array of uh, like-minded people. Um, you know, I, I continue to think we can do uh, great things, big things and small things. And the small things sometimes are just as important in, in, in the world in which I, uh, I operate. Um, and if we do any of that, that'd be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, Robert Fitzgerald, I am uh, said a number of times, you are a treasure and uh, thank you on behalf of uh, our nation and many people. Uh, who are enabled and, and not so enabled uh, into mm. having voice and not having voice, those people with agency and those without. We need people like you to provoke us, to bring the complexity, uh, to provide us a way forward, to challenge and aff affirm many of us, provide us with courage to take that next step and uh, to interrogate on behalf of people such as our wonderful ageing population, our people with disabilities, to make things better for all of us and to express formally and practically that common good. 
And I thank you, uh, dear friend, uh, for the work that you do and the contribution to public policy, the big pieces and the small gifts that you give uh, on a daily basis, on a one-to-one -one basis. I'm sure there's time for a coffee and a newspaper on a Saturday morning somewhere and a delightful lunch with colleagues. But I do hope uh, what you want to achieve next um, will continue, and I'm sure in the interest of many, but in that, have some selfish intent about Robert Fitzgerald as well. Uh, we thank you uh, very much on behalf of the podcast Edge today. So thank you, Robert. Well, thanks, Stephen, and that's very generous of you. And, uh, um, you know, I think, you know, many people in Australian society are doing great stuff and collectively, I think, uh, as you say, we can do the little things and we can do the big things. So uh, thanks. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of Edge.